I was talking to my Aunt Brenda earlier and she was telling me how she was, she felt more prepared for this message because she was there a week before last when I preached it. And I informed her that it's pretty much all changed now. So, <laughs> so for those of you who have heard it before, I hope it doesn't throw you off that it's pretty much all different now. That's what happens whenever you give me more time to preach something. Pack it all in there. I want to start this morning by quoting from Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus is teaching of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what He says. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, covered up, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had so that he could buy that field. Verse 44 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Because in verse 44, Jesus is showing us what it means to truly see and enjoy Him. So this morning in Psalm 24, we are going to be looking at worship. Psalm 24 is a call to worship. That's what David is doing here. He is calling people to come and worship the King. So what I'm going to do is we're going to read this psalm together. I'll pray, and then I'll give you a preview of where we are going. Psalm 24, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Of glory. Father, I come before you as I stand before your word and I stand before your people. And it's so easy for me to think about me right now. How I'm speaking, what I'm saying, if I say something that doesn't seem how I wanted it to be whenever I mess up. Father, help me to forget myself now as I come and stand before Your people and stand before Your Word. Help me to be a vessel that is holding up the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 24 puts on display Your Son. Help me to show them what You have shown me in Your Word. That Jesus Christ is glorious. That He is all-satisfying. That He is the greatest person to ever exist. Ever. Father, I pray that Your Word would strengthen those who are weak, that it would humble 
the proud, that it would bring home the wanderer, and that it would save the lost. Come and do all of these things. Father, you are able. In Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. Psalm 24, as we go through, we're going to handle it in two parts. The first part, verses 1 to 6, is about preparing to worship the King. And the second part, verses 7 to 10, is about the King receiving His worship. So we're going to be looking at David calling people to prepare to worship the King. And then we're going to... to see how David shows the king receiving his worship. And within verses 1 to 6, there's a couple of questions that need to be answered. If we need to be prepared to worship the king, we need to know who is called to worship, and we need to know how they are called to worship. Or you could say we need to know what that worship looks like. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So we'll be starting in verses 1 to 2. So in verses 1 to 2, who is called to worship? Who is called to worship the King of glory? And the answer that David puts before us is that everyone is. He says, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, and the world in those who dwell therein. David's answer is that all creation and that all peoples are called to worship this King, the Lord. Now these verses are huge because David is surrounded by nations and it's still huge today. But David, whenever he's writing this, in the context of him writing this, he is surrounded by nations who don't think this way. They have gods for just about everything you could think of. And so for them to hear this call to worship the Lord, and to worship Him alone, you could picture them saying, what gives Him the right? What gives Him the right to say that I am to worship Him and to worship Him alone? He tells us in verse 2. He says, because He's made you. Because He has made all things and because He's made you. And you are accountable to Him. Now, I want to show you a few passages from the Bible that really hammer this truth home. And you can, as we go through these truths, these passages that I'm going to bring up, you can turn there, although I'm going to be trying to handle them as quickly as possible. The first passage that I want to bring up before you is Exodus 5. Now, in these three passages that I'm going to bring before you, They show the supremacy of God in all creation and the supremacy of God over all peoples. And it shows the supremacy of God in worship. In these passages that I'm going to show you, he is going to make a mockery of all of the idols that man has created within his heart. So Exodus 5 is the first passage I want to bring before you. In Exodus 5... Moses has been called by the Lord to go and stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. So Moses goes, he stands before Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go. 
And Pharaoh's just like, now Egypt, they have a pantheon of gods. They have gods for just about everything you can imagine. The god of the Nile River, god of the sun, probably god of the moon, god of crops, god of fertility, you name it, they got it. And he says, the Lord says, let my people go. And you could picture Pharaoh going, never heard of him. Who is he? He says it in this way. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? That is the famous question of the Bible. And so, the Lord shows Pharaoh who he is and why he should obey him. The Lord goes on to send some plagues on Egypt. And by sending these plagues, He lays waste not only to the nation of Egypt, but He makes a mockery of all of their gods and lays waste to what they supposedly rule over. God is showing that He alone is the living God. Go to the next passage. 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5. In 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5, the people of Israel are acting very foolishly, which is a common thing for the people of Israel to do. They have gone out to battle against the Philistines, and they have not inquired of the Lord before they go. And there's a lot of disobedience going on at this time. So they go out to battle, they draw up the battle line against the Philistines, and they lose. So then they return, they gather up together, they come up with a plan B. They're like... What can we do to win? I know, we'll take the ark with us. We take the ark of the covenant with us, we can't lose. So they go, they get the ark, they take the ark with them, and the way the author really just lays this out, just shows the foolishness of the Israelites. So the ark goes into where they're set up and they're camped to go to battle, and they say that, when the author says when they go into The camp, they bring the ark, there's a mighty shout of the people of Israel. And the Philistines are like, man, what's going on? Nothing like this has ever happened before. Man, we're about to get defeated. So they go out, they take the ark with them, they lose. They lose terribly. Thousands of them are killed. And not only do they lose, the ark of the covenant is captured by the Philistines and they take it and they put it in one of their temples where their so-called god, Dagon, is. His statue is in this temple. And so, the ark stays there two nights. The first night, the Philistines come in, they find their statue of Dagon, their god, laying face down on the floor before the ark. And the Bible tells us that they pick Dagon back up, and they set him back in his place. They pick their God up and put him back in his place. Philistines, man, you guys have got some kind of God. (laughs) Man, you know, that's supposed to be going the other way around. You know, he's supposed to be picking you up and winning all these battles for you. He falls down on the floor. you got to pick him up make him look all God-like. So they pick him back up. They leave. They come back the next morning. And again, Dagon is laying face down on the floor, but this time his head is severed and his hands are severed. And not only does God do this, He sends a plague on the Philistines and sends sickness throughout their nation. He puts tumors on them. And the Philistines cry out 
together and say, we have to get rid of this thing or we're going to be consumed. We're going to be destroyed. The last passage I want to bring up before you comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. This passage is probably by far the most laughable passage when it comes to what idol worship really is. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with this passage. So 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah, he confronts the prophets of Baal, who is a false god at this time, Baal. He goes before these prophets and he tells them, how long are you guys going to be between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, then follow Him. And he says, alright, i got a plan. You guys erect your altar, your sacrifice, and I'll build an altar to the Lord. And you call upon the name of Baal, I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And whoever answers by fire, he is God. The Bible tells us that the prophets of Baal cry out from morning until noon and they do not get an answer. Now, the prophet Elijah, he's sitting back there and I can just picture Elijah, he's just sitting back. He's just like, maybe you're not talking loud enough. Maybe you need to holler. He's a god. Maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on a journey. And they begin to cut themselves. They slice themselves open where blood is gushing out on this sacrifice that they have. This is pathetic. This shows the sickness of man's heart. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But for now, this is so pathetic. This is what an idol is. It's nothing. So Elijah, he has enough of it. He says, come, draw near. He builds his sacrifice and he calls upon the name of the living God. And he answers. He rains fire down and he consumes the sacrifice. And the people of Israel Israel say, He is God. He is God. Too bad that doesn't last very long. If you know the the storyline of Israel, they're going to fall again into some of the very same things. But the point of me showing you those passages is the supremacy of God in all creation and the supremacy of God in all peoples. God alone is worthy of our worship because God alone is the living God. And God alone, because He is these things, He is supreme over all things, He is the one who not only calls all people to worship, but He is the one who also establishes how we are to worship, which leads us into verses 3 to 6. So how are these people to worship? David tells us in verse 6. Verse 6 is pretty much the summary of verses 4 and 5. So he says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? How are we to worship? How are we to stand before such a high and mighty God? one that is holy, one that stands apart and above us. He says in verse 6, those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So what David is saying is the worship that God requires is the person that comes before God and seeks 
His face truly, wholeheartedly seeks the face of God. This is what acceptable worship looks like to the Lord. Now this leads to a problem. Because as we have seen in some of the examples that I just gave you, nobody is found who can give this acceptable worship. Nobody is worthy to stand before God. And nobody seeks the face of God. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Because Paul spells this out very plainly. Romans chapter 3. I'll look at verses... 11 through 18. Now, in Romans chapter 3, Paul is pretty much laying out the gospel. He's laying out what the gospel looks like. And in this part, at this point in his letter, he is showing the fall of man. And it's really what we're doing as we go through Psalm 24. The plan of redemption is on display for us to see as we go through these verses. You know, creation, fall, reconciliation, and consummation. That's what is beneath the surface as we go through here. So anyways, Paul is showing how we are all fallen human beings. Starting in verse 10, he says, As it is written, he's making his argument, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then in verse 23, he summarizes all that he has said. In these verses here, Paul is pulling from numerous passages of Scripture. Mainly he's pulling from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. These verses spell out what he's saying. But then in verse 23, he summarizes and says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there is no one righteous. No, not even one. No one seeks the face of God, truly to know Him for who He is. So in light of that, what is God going to do? Because He requires all people to worship Him alone, and He requires them to worship in a way that requires them to wholeheartedly seek His face. And nobody is able to do it. And furthermore, not only... Are they not worthy? They have rejected the idea, period. They say, we don't need God. We don't want God as our king. We will be our own kings. God, you can just get on out of here and let us do our own thing, man. We don't need you. I'm doing fine and mighty right now. I don't need your set of rules or whatever. So they reject Him. Now, in light of that, what would be the right thing for God to do? What would be just? You know, we as human beings are all about being fair, right? We like justice, we like fairness. You know, if something happens, that's not fair! I want justice! 
I want what's right. So what does it look like here? Justice in this situation looks like God sweeping everybody into hell. Sweeping them into hell and pouring His holy wrath on them for all eternity. You still want justice? You still want what's fair? Thankfully, God doesn't do this. Instead, God sends a man into the world. And at this time, so 2,000 so years ago, a man stepped into the world. Now what the people don't know is that this man is the Son of God. He is the King Himself, veiled in human flesh. And He has been sent to save these people. He has been sent to save the very people who reject Him, who reject God and all that He stands for and all that He has given them. So surely, they will listen to the man who has come to save them, right? Who has come to help them, to show them the way to walk. But they don't. They reject Him. They reject Him to the point that they hang Him on a cross and they kill Him. And just looking from afar, so we just looking... Uh, above these things, looking at these people from afar, it's very easy to say, you guys are idiots. Okay? He comes to save you, you reject Him, and you kill Him. Now, this is the part where it gets real, I guess you could say, because we are those people. We're the people that have done all of these things. What Those passages that I was just describing to you about idol worship, physically, we were not there. Physically, we were not the ones, you know, cutting ourselves on the sacrifice, crying out to Baal, and doing all of those other things. But spiritually, we are the same. Because the truth about an idol is that the true false god that stands behind the idol is the person who made it. The idol is nothing. It just shows what man in his heart desires for him to be God. Because the idol's not going to do anything. The only thing that the idol can do, the only thing that the false God can do, is what the person who made it sets out for it to do. So who's really God? Not the idol. The person who's created it. That's the human heart. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's all the same. Whenever I was a teenager, I was a bad teenager, I got sent to YCP. It's a military school for troubled young lads. Anyways, so we went, I, I went to this military school and the cadre, as they were called, would say, man, you guys are all the same. Same thing, different faces. Same thing, different faces. That's what the Bible showed. Remember the storyline of the Bible? Over and over and over and over. It, it happens so much that you just get sick. 
Man, when are you guys going to wise up? Do something right. Same hearts, different faces. Same hearts, different generations. Same hearts, different people. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are the people that we read about in the Bible spiritually. We have the same sickness that they have. So, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent by God, has come to save them. He has come to save the very people who have into their hearts rejected Him. Now what they don't know is that by hanging Him on the cross, by killing the Son of God, they have actually fulfilled the plan that God has had from the very beginning. From the very beginning, turn to Acts chapter 4. See how this is spelled out. None of this surprises God. It's not like God sends His Son into the world and they kill Him and God's up in heaven saying, man, what do I do now? That was like the last thing I had. You know, I thought that was going to work. No, it's not like that. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 28. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles John and Peter have been preaching the Christ. They have been preaching that salvation is in the name of Jesus. Well, the Jews in Jerusalem don't really like that because, you know, they were the one that killed Him. So, they charge the apostles, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. We don't want to hear about this, alright? You just cut it out. We don't want to hear it. And so, they release them and they come back. They go back to their brothers, the brothers and sisters in the faith, and they pray for boldness. And this is what they say, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This does not surprise God by a long shot. In killing the Son of God, they have accomplished what God has planned from all eternity. God has planned... Father, help me to lay this out. This is deep, and I I want to be very careful how I lay this out. So God has planned all of this. Nothing surprises Him. It's not like He learns something new. So God talking about big picture here now, God has always planned that from the very beginning, in eternity past, He would create a people. And He ordained that those people would fall 
into sin. But in the midst of all of this sinfulness and all of this horrific failure, it all points to when the second person of the Trinity would step down He would add to Himself, God in Christ, the second person of the Trinity, would add to Himself human flesh and step into the world and would save the very people who have rejected Him in their sin. And He has done this so that the Lord Jesus Christ, what we're about to look at, is going to get the highest praise and the highest glory, and that we, the worshipers, we, the people, get the greatest joy. So, Christ on the third day rises from the grave. He is victorious over sin and death. He has defeated sin, death, Satan, the bonds that hold us from seeing who He is. In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, Jesus has accomplished the rescue of His people. He has redeemed them. He has given His people the clean hands, the pure hearts, the desire to seek the face of the Lord truly. That's coming from verses 3-5. to uh, three to six, excuse me. He gives them that. He redeems them to be able to do those things. And not only that, He adopts them. He doesn't just save them, He adopts them. The very people who kill Him, who hate Him, He dies so that they can be adopted into His own family. So that they can be sons and daughters of God. So that they can be heirs with Christ. And also He accomplishes the work that His Father has given Him so that He is to be crowned the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The King of glory. So let's move down into verses 7 to 10. The King receives His worship. So this is really what we've been looking at. Just to summarize really quick before we get into the King receiving His worship. God has required that all people are to worship Him. And He's required how they should worship. They fail and they can't do it. They can't stand before Him. So the way that they stand before Him is by receiving the righteousness from the King Himself. It's like the king says, the only way you're going to get into my kingdom is if you are perfect. And they can't do it. So the king himself goes and he dies for them. God in Christ dies for them. Alright, verses 7 to 10. So God, excuse me, Jesus, talking about the Trinity, the three persons, having to be very clear and One God, three persons, making sure I'm not confusing anybody with language I'm using. So Jesus ascends into heaven. He is victorious. And He walks up to heaven's gates. He walks up to the gates 
that no one has ever been worthy to open. These gates lead into the presence of the Father. They lead into His holiness. They lead into His presence. And so, He walks up to these gates, and this is what He says. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The gates respond, Who is this King of glory? Who is this man that approaches the gates of heaven? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Colossians 1, 15-20 He... Jesus is the one who disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Colossians 2.15 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3-4 to Jesus Christ is the true and better Adam. He is everything that you and I were supposed to be and infinitely more. Infinitely more. So they have said, who is this King of glory? Who is this King of glory? Jesus, the Lord, strong and mighty. Jesus, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Jesus, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So I want to go back to the passage that I quoted to you all before we got started. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has so that he can have the treasure. The treasure is Christ. And that's what is on display here. The call is to come and worship the King. To worship Jesus. But the call is to come and to worship Him with joy. With joy come before the Lord. If you don't worship Christ with joy, then you don't know who He is. To know Christ 
is to see the total expression of God shining in the face of Jesus. And in Him, you see the most beautiful, the most awe-inspiring, the most satisfying person ever. And if that does not well up in your heart joy, then you haven't seen Him. I also love verse 44 from chapter 13 so much because as I work to a close, when I was growing up, I was taught about who Jesus is. I had parents who taught me about Jesus. He's the Son of God. He came. He died for you. He died to pay for your sins so that you don't go to hell. And that sounded good. You know, I like the sound of that. Nobody wants to go to hell, right? But at the same time, I know who Jesus was. Kind of like you see somebody on TV and you know who they are. But you don't have a relationship with this person. You can just say who their name is. Oh yeah, I know so and so. But if he, pay attention, if he was to stand before you, would he say that he knows you? Does the King of glory know you? Now obviously he knows who you are because he's sovereign and he's created you. I don't mean that. What I mean is that he personally know you as his servant, as his brother, being heirs with Christ, born of God, grafted into the family of God. Do you know him in that way? I remember whenever I first started coming to All's Chapel and at this point, God had been revealing to me that I was a wretched man and that things were not right. I looked, I remember standing in my yard one day, I looked around and I asked myself, Ron, what do you have? What do you have for yourself? You've wasted 18 years of your life and you don't have anything. So I began coming to church, I began asking questions, and I began to, I remember Mike inviting me to Wednesday nights, I remember this pretty vividly. Mike invited me to come to Wednesday nights where they were doing a series called The Blazing Sinner. The teacher of this series, name is John Piper, you may have heard of him. He's probably one of the most influential teachers, besides Mike of course, ever. And I sat down with the youth those nights through that series, and I was blown away. I had never heard somebody talk about Jesus in that way. I mean, I was taught that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came to save me, but be all satisfying, finding your joy in Him. You know, He's what you're made for. And at the end of the series, He gave a couple of stories, and those who were in the military will probably appreciate this because the stories that he gave come from the book called Flag of Our Fathers. And he laid out some stories about men fighting for their country, gave their lives for their comrades and for their country. And then he asked the question, they laid down their lives not to make little of what they did, but they laid down their lives for something so small finite. The cause of Christ is so much bigger. 
It expands from eternity past to eternity future. And he laid it out like this cause is so much greater in seeing Christ is your joy filled with worship to not only live with to live for him, but to if you are called, die for him. And I sat there and I was speechless because I had never heard that before. And he blew up in my mind who Jesus Christ is. And that's hope what I, that's what I hope I have done for you this morning. Now, the whole dying for Christ, this is what Christ calls us to. He doesn't call us to cotton candy, you know, all nice and fluffy and sweet all the time. He calls us to come and if we will follow Him, to shoulder our cross along with Him, and to die. But through death, through dying with Him, we will live with Him. Now what does that mean for us today, right now? All of what I've said, what does that mean for today? It changes everything, doesn't it? I know it did for me, and it should for everybody. Because that's the way the Bible, not because of me, I'm not the example the Bible is. I wake up every morning differently. The way when you grasp these truths, you wake up every morning different. You go to bed every night different. You talk to people different. You look at people differently. You look at work. You look at all creation. You look at life differently. He changes everything. Jesus changes everything. And so this morning, I don't know your heart if you're thinking about all this joy stuff and you're like, man, I don't, I've never thought about Jesus that way. I don't have joy welling up in my heart for Christ like that. I don't mean that your joy must be perfect. You know that. The Christian life is a struggle. It's war. We fight every day for joy in Christ. The old man is constantly clinging on to you, trying to drag you back into sin. But Christ has won the battle and He enables you to fight. And when Christ came upon the earth, when He walked the earth, Alls Chapel, you should know this very well, we just got through going through the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus came and He walked among His people, He stretched His hands out to who? He didn't stretch His hands out to the people who thought they were worthy of righteousness. He stretched His hands out to people who were unworthy. The sick, the lame, the leper, the people who, like the... Gentile in the temple, the tax collector in the temple, he, he goes before God and he says, I'm unworthy. I don't know you. Help me. And this is what we are to do to Christ. We were talking about this this morning in Sunday school. Repent and believe in the gospel. Go before Christ. Confess who you are. And he will come and he will help you and he will open your eyes to see him as he is and he will show you what you were made for. To worship him to give Him the highest glory and for Him to give you the greatest joy. Father, I come before You and I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the truth of who Christ is, the truth that all of the Bible is about Him and all points to Him. It all lifts Him up. It puts Him before us. It puts us before Him in a way that doesn't let us have any wiggle room. 
Father, I pray that you would be with my brothers and sisters as we leave from here and we go into everyday lives where we have our own struggles, whether it's with work or whatever it may be. I pray that you would put the joy of who Christ is before them and that in seeing the joy of Jesus, they would be able to walk through whatever struggle lays before them. Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, not only in this message, but in all things, he would receive the glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.